0: like sometimes people say, what are you talking about? The church generating income? No way. It's a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It's a church for goodness sake. And they'll say things like, pastor, just trust the Lord, just (laughs) preach the gospel and trust the Lord and all your needs. That is the church's needs will be met in Christ Jesus, right? Just trust the Lord. Mm -hmm. What do you say to a person like that? You know what you say? say, let me ask you a question. You ever gone to a doctor? You ever taken prescription medicine? You ever signed a loan to buy a car you couldn't otherwise afford with cash? where's your faith? Mm. You know you understand what I'm saying? Like, you don't yeah, live yeah. like that. Why don't you just sit in your house, read the Bible all day, pray, and then go out and check your mailbox. Do you have a job? Do you have two jobs? Do you get up and work hard? Do you, Where's your faith? Just sit back, read the Bible and pray, and just go check your mailbox.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Multi-Ethnic Gospel Approach Podcast, where we cover all things multi-ethnic. It's the M-E-G-A-P-O-V-C-A-S-T, the Mega Podcast. It's the M-E-G-A-P-O-V-C-A-S-T, Mega Podcast. What's up, guys? I'm Marcel, and I want to welcome you to the Multi-Ethnic Gospel Approach, a.k.a. the Mega Podcast, where we cover all things multi ethnic relating ministry. Uh, I'm here with my guy... Micah Gaston, yep. Woo! I wish you had like a little horn, but I'm here <laughs> nice. with Micah, man, and, uh, and and listen, man, we got a special guest with us today. I'm going to let him introduce him, man. Um, I know that you guys go way back, and yeah. he's a very intelligent guy, um, and Absolute a guy with man. a huge heart for the community <laughs> and uh, yeah. and all that good stuff. So I let you uh, do what you do. How about he's that?
2: laughing, but he he knows that's true. Yes. Um. No, I don't. I, I'm
1: just old. <laughs> that's it i just I've just
0: lived a long time, not, not intelligence. Just lived a long time. I don't know.
2: Well, that at least means you're learning, right? You're at least you're you know you're not just getting older, not learning anything. That would be the opposite, right? Oh man. Um. Right. So yeah, Pastor Mark and I have been connected since when I first came here to Midtown. I went to my first Mosaic's conference back in uh, 2016, um, and so uh, got connected there with the Mosaic's network. Of course, uh, we're going to talk mainly today about church economics. But Pastor Mark has written on, uh, extensively on what a, multi, a healthy, multi-ethnic church looks like uh, and really has shaped leaders all over the country uh, through what Mosaics does, through the conferences and global, or, you know, and uh, all throughout the year as far as coaching and staffing and and really is a leader in this movement uh, that is a multi-ethnic church a movement. So, uh, Pastor Mark, we'd love to turn it over to you and just you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, how Mosaic came about there and Little Rock about how uh, the Mosaics Network came about, a little bit about, you know, just uh, um, kind of your, your story and how you got this season of where you're leading as you are kind of uh, in our country as far as multi-ethnic church leaders.
0: Yeah, you bet, Micah and Marcel. Great to be with you guys today. I think you should call it the M&M podcast, right? There yeah, 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 yeah. you go. Get your m M&M and bags.
1: Hey, low key, that's, you know. the, that's the real name. You know what I'm saying? That's the real name. <laughs> no, but obviously you guys
0: know I've been uh, watching you and coming alongside right. at different points over the last four or five years and just so proud of what you're doing there uh, and the, the camaraderie that you clearly have, the relationship, the transparency, the trust, and how that spills over into the church, into your ministry. So way to go, guys. Really, really proud of you and what, you're, what you what you, you put together you. there as a Shit. team. Um, yeah, just as briefly as I can, I was born out of wedlock, 1961, raised in a single parent home in San Francisco, California. Uh, you know, hardworking, blue collar all my life. My mom held two, sometimes three jobs to keep um, food on the table, so to speak. Uh, I, she was gig before there was a gig economy. And I learned it with her on the streets of Alameda, selling Avon at seven and, you know, washing dishes up at the restaurant and all the different things we did. So to this day, I'm still just a blue collar guy, you know, slugging it out every day, trying to make an impact for the kingdom of God. But uh, I was raised Catholic, uh, educated Catholic, Jesuit Catholic throughout a college prep experience. I was on a work scholarship. So uh, you know, my bill was paid because I worked in the rectories. I, you know, worked for the priest, etc., for six years and helped pay uh, my college, uh, my uh, junior high and high school education uh, with the Jesuits. But uh, after that, a college baseball player, in my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year, I came to know Christ personally. Mm. Uh, I was a junior college baseball player. The next year whisked away on a full ride scholarship to a little school called Liberty University. Actually, it was Liberty mm. Baptist College at that time Wow. and uh, played Division I baseball there uh, when the school was just 10 years old for the next three years. So I went from Jesuit Catholicism to independent fundamentalist Baptist overnight. You know, I mean, I yeah. spin your head. I was discipled by Keith Green music. <laughs> And oh, wow. uh, three years later, too slow to get drafted, had nothing better to do in the church that I'd come to know the Lord at was a, uh, a conservative Baptist church in Scottsdale, Arizona, where my mother and I had moved when I was in sixth grade. And, uh, and again, having nothing better to do, I was a psych major. Um, They hired me to be the high school pastor. I didn't even know you could get paid to do that. Did that for about a year and a half, making a whopping—I think it was four hundred or eight hundred dollars a month, or something like that. Wow! Uh, But after a year and a half, the pastor brought me into his office. He said, "Uh, "It seems like you like doing this." And I go, "Yeah, it's kind of cool. I enjoy it." And he goes, "It seems like the kids respond to you really well." And I go, "Yeah, it seems like they do." You know, I had about seventy kids in that high school group. He said, well, do you want to keep doing this? And I go, yeah. And uh, he said, well, you can't keep giving your testimony every week, you know? And so I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, if you want to keep doing this, you should probably go to seminary. And so instantly I thought Gregorian chants and robes and, you know, because I was raised Jesuit. <laughs> yeah, sure. He's like, no, no, it's not like that. He goes, now you, I go, where do you go? He said, you can go to Dallas seminary, but you have to wear a blue coat, a tie and gray slacks. Or you can go where I went to Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and wear jeans. So off I went to Western Portland, uh, Western (laughs) Seminary in Portland, Oregon, so I could wear jeans. There you go. Uh, Got a job as a youth pastor right away. Uh, Started the first skateboard church in America. Thirty-three years later, it's still going with one of the two guys I started that with. Wow. Uh, uh, Met my wife. We got married. Continued a trajectory of youth ministry uh, for the next seven or eight years. So when I had ten years of student ministries experience. Uh, in 1993, a church here in Little Rock, Arkansas, a mega church, 2,000 people at the time, uh, hired me to come over, take over their junior-senior high school ministry. It was about 150 when I got here. Uh, eight years later, that church was 5,000 people. The youth group was 600. My staff was nine full-time staff. I built a $3.5 million student center, paid cash for it. I was in the top 2% of paid youth pastors in America. I was living the dream. Until one day I looked around this otherwise amazing church and realized the only people of color were janitors. Mm. Wow. And that began to bother me, Wow, but I didn't know why in 1997 that bothered me, but it began to bother me. And so having a degree in exegesis, I essentially threw out my seminary notes, did my own study of the new Testament church. That is the nature, the character, Mm. the ethos, if you will, and came to realize that every church outside of Jerusalem uh, was what we would call today a healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse church. It was men mm. and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, willing themselves to walk, work, and worship God together as one. And it was that demonstration of the power of Christ to be lifted up and draw all people into himself, not just some people to himself, wow. uh, uh, that really fueled the explanation of the gospel. So it wasn't so much the explanation of the gospel, it was the demonstration of the power yeah. of the gospel, yeah. of Christ mm. to lift to be lifted up, as I mentioned Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven, right? And so all that's today is in 2001. Then I left that church, stayed in the city, uh, came to the inner city, the urban uh, center of Little Rock, Arkansas, 30% uh, poverty, 66% of kids without dads in the home, highest violent crime in the city to start what Christianity today would call three years later, a big dream in Little Rock. And that was could <laughs> nice. diverse men and women of That's ethnic kind of and it. culturally different backgrounds, economic backgrounds, again, will themselves uh, to walk, work, worship God together as one in a local church uh, here in the United States and particularly in the urban center of Little Rock, Arkansas. And Micah, Marcel, I can't even believe it, but literally my my twenty, I am finishing my 20th year uh, on May 31st, start my 21st year here at Mosaic in wow. Little Rock. Awesome. Several That's years awesome. into that. Uh, by 2003, 2004, as I was sharing my vision, not only with people here in the city, but every now and then outside of that, I had extensive contacts through Leadership Network as a youth pastor prior to my life here at Mosaic. Uh, you know, most people said I was crazy, that it'll never work. People want to go to church with them, people that look like them, think like them, act like them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Birds of a feather flock together. And and, and, it, and, and they were, it was a lot of discouraging voices. Mm. Um, that just did not believe it could happen. You know, 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in the week. Uh, yeah. It's been observed since 1880 that that's the case. And, mm. uh, but every now and then I'd run into somebody that would say something like, oh, I think there's a guy in Cincinnati trying to do that. Or I think there's a, a woman over here and, and I would just network my way to that person. Uh, again, and, and we'd get on the phone and we'd commiserate. You know, like he or she was discouraged, <laughs> I was discouraged. Like people were putting Co-miserate. discouragement on us, right? Not encouraging the vision, and oh, and, and we were sharing with one another and encouraging one another and learning from one another, and all of that led Dr. George Yancey, an African American sociologist, now at Baylor University, and I to form Mosaic Global Network in 2004 with a vision to network uh, leaders of like mind who had a passion to see the church on earth reflect the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God in relation to who uh, the the people of God who walk, work, worship there in attendance. And and so that was the genesis of the network, really just to connect people of like mind, to offer encouragement, mutual support, peer learning. Uh, We did that in the early years through retreats and just on the phone and any way that we could, speaking at conferences, uh, you know, in the back rooms when five people would show up, three people. And and most of the people, every now you get, you know, they'd sit there with their arms crossed like this. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't believe Mm. in it. And then, uh, you know, 10 years later, Black Lives Matter. Mm. And all of a sudden the church started to pay attention, but it really wasn't until the tragedies, the latest round of tragedies, I should say last year with the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, et cetera, Uh, you know, the tragedy of Breonna Taylor. And even as we speak in the last couple of weeks, just on and on the names go that the church, the American church, and particularly, let's just be honest, white evangelicals, you know, kind of threw themselves on the floor and said, I don't know what to do. Help me and tell me what to do because it cannot be sustained. So all that's to say is the work of Mosaic has continued to grow, particularly in the last six to seven years and working with churches to help them build healthy, multi-ethnic and economically diverse, socially just culturally intelligent and financially sustainable churches.
1: That's awesome. Absolutely, man. Well, I just want to take a minute real quick and just encourage you, if you're watching on YouTube at this moment, please take a moment, hit the subscribe button, uh, make sure you hit that notification bell to get all the notifications and all the updates. But also um, we want you to share this video, share it with your friends, share it with the co-laborers. In, in the gospel, because someone else needs this, and so this is great content. We have a great uh, guest on on with us, Mark demoz and man, he's already dropping some incredible gems, and we haven't right. even started the real conversation yet. Right. So, also, please follow follow uh to follow all of our other podcast platforms. There's a link in the description. Just click that link, and you will be tethered to us from here on out. That's right. Never right? let you go. Yeah, right. Can't Never let you go. That's right.
2: Never gonna I'll let you people. sing it. I'm not gonna sing it. <laughs> Nobody would listen after that if I sing it. Oh man! <laughs>
1: so listen, yeah. Let's move. Let's move. Let's All move. Right. Let's move. I'll le- I'll leave it over to you once again because uh, these are some very um some very meaty questions, and so I'll let the I'll let the meaty Micah. <laughs> the meaty-
2: I'm not sure if I want that nickname. I don't know either. It just it came out. Don't judge them. Right, don't judge me. I appreciate yep. it. Uh, so, Pastor Mark, we we know that you've written your most recent book is really about church economics and about you know what is the biblical pattern for church economics. What does that look like, particularly for churches that are like churches we're leading that are more urban, that are in in context where you know you want to reach all of your mission field, and so that means you're reaching the single moms, matriarchal homes on fixed income. You know, and obviously you want to reach those families with the gospel, but yet you need, you want to keep the mission moving forward as well. Uh, and so um, why is it important for churches um, to begin to develop uh, or diversify their their strategy, their economic strategy outside of just what comes into the plate on Sunday morning?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, um, in the 20th century, it was all about tithes and offerings, right? In the 21st, you're going to have to develop multiple streams of income not only to survive, but to thrive in terms of advancing the mission uh, of God, the mission of the church, again, going forward, at least for the next 30 to 40 years in the 21st century. Uh, We came into that reality of that, the the understanding of the need to create multiple streams of income. uh, Because as I mentioned, when I planted this church in the inner city, 2001, uh, coming from that very large mega church where literally money just, you know, it almost like grew on trees. I went to my senior <laughs> pastor one time and I said, Hey, I need another person on my staff. He said, no, you need three. And I got three. You wow. see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. So uh, it, it was like money was no object there, mm-hmm. but when, and, and in a church like that, like most churches uh, the, it's, it's the more people who join your church, it, it, you, you generate income right through tithes yeah. and offerings, revenue, et cetera. When I planted this church in the urban center, we quickly realized that the more people who joined our church, it cost us money. Mm. Like homeless and undocumented immigrants and on and on it went and, and yeah. you know, very few professionals and a lot of blue collar or just slugging it out type folks. And, and if we, we quickly realized our team that if we did not learn to generate multiple streams of income, we would not be able to meet the needs of this community. Right. In other words, if it was tithes and offerings, it'd be me, a janitor and a secretary and about 75 or 80 people. Mm. And we could have done that. But if we're going to have and I'm not talking about growing a church of tens of thousands necessarily. I'm just saying the needs in the community were so great, let alone the needs of the church. And we realized tithes and offerings wouldn't be enough uh, to cover that uh, if we're going to, again, advance bold mission and ministry in the community. So we got on this early and this was an urban reality that now has become a reality for every church in America. Wow. Yeah. And if COVID mm. didn't teach you that, if you're a pastor listening, mm. I don't know what will. Yeah. Um, mm. And I could go through a variety of statistics, but the book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and What You Can Do About It really uh, articulates the theological understanding, the underpinnings of what we're talking about uh, the sociological reasons. And of course gives best practices in terms of how uh, to begin that journey. Like Mike and Marcel, you guys have done there. One of the things that people don't understand about this, uh, uh, the economics of it, I could just share with you this. We're not talking about like the church just getting rich and, and leveraging its assets. And by the way, I should define that church economics. Like we're talking about is the phrase that this is what is church economics It's leveraging the assets of your church, people, money, and facilities to bless the community. That is to advance the gospel, the mission of God, uh, uh, the common good, Matthew 5, 16, but at the same time, generate some measure of sustainable income. Again, in addition to tithes and offerings, all about tithes and offerings. I'm just saying they won't be enough. And so church economics is is about, that's the definition. And in, in terms of application, it, we're not talking about a church again just sitting back and making money with its buildings, but doing it in a benevolent way and in a biblical way. Yeah. Right. Because, oh, like, like, sometimes people say, What are you talking about? The church generating income? No way. It's a nonprofit, mm-hmm. it's a church, for goodness sake. And yeah. they'll say things like, Pastor, just trust the Lord, just yeah, preach yeah, just, the gospel and trust the Lord, and all your needs that is, the church's needs will be met in Christ Jesus, right? Just trust the Lord. Mm -hmm. What do you say to a person like that? You know what you say? Say, let me ask you a question. You ever gone to a doctor? You ever taken prescription medicine? You ever signed a loan to buy a car you couldn't otherwise afford with cash? Where's your faith? Mm -hmm. You know you what I'm saying? Like, you don't (laughs) live like that. Why don't you just sit in your house, read the Bible all day, pray, and then go out and check your mailbox. Do you have a job? Do you have two jobs? Do you get up and work hard? Do you Where's your faith? Just sit back, read the Bible and pray, and just go check your mailbox. Right? Individual Christians mm. don't live like that. Yeah, yeah. So why would we think the collective church would not be intentional in regard to its stewardship, which is part mm, of this, the reason on the biblical side, stewardship. When you read the story of the, uh, of, of the stewards, the talents, right? and everybody knows the story, right? This guy had five, this guy had two, this guy had one, the master comes back. Hey, you gave me five, here's your five, and I made you five. You gave me two, here's your two, and I made you two. Well done, good and faithful stewards, good and faithful servants. One guy sat on his asset. One guy sat on his asset, and he's called a wicked, lazy slave. The American church is literally sitting on tens of billions, billions with a beat, of dollars of assets buried in the ground like that last slave, that last servant, right? Mm, It's land that is sitting there undeveloped. It's buildings that sit empty from week to week, doing absolutely no good for the community, no good for mm. any other reason to be there on a Sunday morning. It's it's a church of 65 people with a two and a half million dollar endowment in the bank, wow. uh, yeah. and 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 nobody's getting saved. The community's not being engaged. But by golly, every 65, every person of those 65 people are going to tell you how proud they are mm. of their two and a half million dollar in the uh, endowment in the bank. Right? Yeah. Wow. That is wicked, lazy stewardship. And we need to flip the switch and recognize the biblical moorings of good stewardship is not just managing what God has given to us. It's leveraging what God has given to us in Mm. a variety of ways to make disciples. Yes, but also to generate sustainable income so we can make disciples for the next hundred years or 50 years or 30 years, whatever the lifespan is. And not just for the next 30 days, Mm. because that's what COVID has taught us. It's not good stewardship merely to manage things. Most pastors in America right now, guys, uh, and when it comes to economics and finance, all they're doing in their churches is managing decline.
2: Mm, they're true. just wow. managing decline. Yeah.
0: And that's just the biblical reason, let alone all the sociological reasons. But true. to answer your question, these are some of the reasons we need to lean in to the concept of church economics, leverage our assets, bless the community, generate yeah.
1: sustainable income. Mm, that's good. Absolutely. So, for the, there's some people that may be watching who have not, you know, are or are not aware of all the things that you've written and all the great uh, content that you currently have out there. Um, so could you just take a moment and kind of give us, uh, give them a preview or a snapshot of your three-legged system uh, when it comes to church, uh, church economics? I don't know why that was difficult to say. <laughs> church economics. Church economics. Yeah, for sure. No, I appreciate the question, Marcel, because
0: Uh, It really ties into uh, something I've been sharing with folks uh, recently about, are you playing with a 20th or 21st century operating system? Mm. Right? So in the 20th century, it was ties and offerings, 21st, multiple streams of income in the 20th century. It was size 21st. It's about influence. The greater your diversity and structural health, the greater your influence in your community, right? In the 20th century, it was about explanation. In the 21st, it's demonstration. That's what mm. you lead with. So many people have just simply repackaged 20th century technology in the church and and are acting as if that's like you know the that's like the new thing. What you're asking me about is a disruptive technology for the church. It's a disruptive way of thinking about things. And Marcel, you mentioned the three-legged stool. Uh, That comes from a book I wrote called Disruption with Thomas Nelson in 2017, Repurposing the Church to Redeem the Community. But essentially, the easiest way to explain this technology, if you will, this structural shift for the American church— moving away from a single dimensional to a three dimensional playing field and the way you can think about that in simple terms is like an american football team right you could have a killer offense but if you don't stop the run and your field goal kicker can't hit the you can't, can't kick a field goal the snap goes bad you don't win the game you yeah. cannot win an american football game with a single dimensional attack just an offense yeah. for instance yeah. you've got to have a strong offense strong defense strong special teams And all of those teams have to be playing synergistically, simultaneously minimizing mistakes, playing with excellence in order to win a big game, like a college national championship, the Super Bowl, uh, et cetera. So when we think about the American church and this idea of disrupting the system and creating a structural uh, technology, if you will, for the 21st century, we're talking about a three-legged stool. It's not offense, defense, special teams. Uh, We call it in the book, spiritual, social, and financial. The spiritual leg is what every church, that's the playing field they're already on, right? They have a spiritual game plan, their evangelism, discipleship, worship, children's programs, visiting people when they're sick, rallying around women who give birth and bringing meals through a community group or a small group. Think about that as the spiritual game plan, like the offense. It has an offensive game plan, right? So every church has that spiritual leg in place, but far less churches have a social justice leg in place right? A biblical justice, a local justice uh, in the community place, right? Where we're advancing justice, compassion, and mercy in a local community in a structural way, right? So what is one of the structures of the church by which we advance compassion and mercy? We send our people and our resources across the ocean, but people across the street don't even know your name, We've got to change that in the 21st century. They don't even know you're there. And I'm not just, that's not hyperbole. I was working with a group of Methodist pastors in Charlotte about three years ago. I loaded them in a 15 pack van. I'm driving, there's 14 of them. We pull out of a Methodist church, go across the street into an apartment complex. An African American young woman, I'm going to say 25, comes out the door with a dog. I pull up alongside, Excuse me, miss, can we ask you a question? She goes, Sure. I said, What can you tell me about the church across the street? You know what she said? What church? Wow. Mm. And the pastor of that church was in the van. Wow. wow. See, we've got to develop that, that social justice compassionate leg. And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you're hung up on the word uh, social justice, all that means to be just to the society, right? And Micah 6 8, Micah 6 8, what did he say? But to do justice. That's right. That's not a CRT term. That's not a 21st century U.S. term. That's a biblical yeah. term. That's right. Right. So I would encourage you, don't be hung up on terms. We have to advance just living in society on behalf of Christ in a compassionate, merciful way. And we do that structurally by creating a second nonprofit, which is the second leg. Create a separate nonprofit. The church is a nonprofit, generates tithes and offerings, primary mechanism for generating revenue. The social leg, you create a separate nonprofit which then helps you qualify for local, state, and federal grants, other churches donating money. It generates a new stream of income and gets those works out from under a restrictive church budget to open that up to new possibilities to, again, advance justice, mercy, and compassion in your community through a nonprofit, your second leg. That's the social leg. We call it in the book. And then financial, of course, is what we're talking about today. That third leg, which is for-profit business enterprise, done in a benevolent way, leveraging the assets of your church, people, money, and buildings, again, to advance the mission, bless the community, but at the same time, generate some sustainable income. Uh, what does that look like? It's a church renting its facility, its parking lot, it's a church reconfiguring, uh, uh, you know, Sunday school classrooms that are sitting there empty and creating a, a shared space, nonprofit, co-labor space, generating some measure of income, not charging top dollar, but not giving everything away for free. If you yeah. keep giving everything away for free as a pastor in a church, trust me, you're not going to be here in 10 years, mm. right? So even you yeah. say, oh, we have a gym. We let this community program use our gym for free. It all sounds very good. But who pays the water bill? Who pays the electricity? Who pays the toilet paper? The cups? Yeah. you understand? What about the janitor? So I, I, I worked with a church one time, fellas, and they had a very large church. They, this church was 13 people. In, in Raleigh, Durham. And wow. they had a traditional sanctuary. They rented their sanctuary to a site of a, multi, a multi-site multi church. They were so excited. Oh, this church pays us $2,500 a month to rent our sanctuary. It's so great, man. I don't know what we'd do without that money. Well, we got into their books. It costs the church $2,900 to have that church there. Wow. But they, wow. were, they, they weren't thinking in terms of like commercial. We hired a commercial real estate guy, went out. We figured that space was worth $8,500 a month, and we raised their rent to $6,500. We didn't mm-hmm. charge them top dollar, but we charged them $6,500 to cover the $2,900 cost the church was incurring and hire a full-time, worship, uh, uh, well, at, we had a $36,000 a year salary to get a pastor in there for the first time. Oh, wow. So, so this is what we're talking about. It's smart economics, which of course, none of us got in Bible school or seminary, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We didn't get one hour of one class of one seminary degree talking anything about business. And, and yet the church is a business. It doesn't exist to make top dollar, but if you don't run the church in a smart economic way in the 21st century, you won't have a church to run going forward.
2: Mm. Man. Wow. It's tough. Yeah, for sure. That's tough. Yeah. Stuff. um so we like to you know there's so much so many different directions we could go i'd like for uh for us to talk about just a minute um if you'd be willing pastor mark to share just a little bit about uh some things you've done there you know as far as applying these principles there at, at your space there uh with your mosaic church there in little rock to really apply these principles so not just something you're writing on because you know we've all read those theoreticians you know that uh that, that write a lot of stuff and they do a bunch of research and they're very smart Uh, but they're not really practitioners. They're not, they're not in the ebb and flow of applying this uh, and writing as they're applying and seeing success. And that's one of the things I appreciate about your writings. These are all things that you've, you've not only, um, you know, done your research, but you're, you're in the middle of applying this in your context. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about what this looks like uh, at y'all site there uh, in Little Rock, ways you found to, uh, um, to really apply this three-legged stool principle?
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll just start with something, uh, not simple, but, but, you know, a lot of people are planning churches or maybe they don't have a building right now. And they're saying, how can we raise money to get a building? Well, we actually put a building under contract when we didn't have the money. And, Mm -hmm. and eventually we bought it. It took us 10 years to get into it, but it was a hundred thousand square foot abandoned Kmart in the community. Mm -hmm. And, and before we were ever in there, we rented half the building to a suburban fitness club at a mere $2 a square foot, much lower market rates. That uh, that fitness club came into the inner city, created essentially a suburban club in 50,000 square feet of this space, paid us $8,000 a month that paid the $7,400 mortgage. They Mm -hmm. put 1.7 million into the infrastructure, heat and air and electric and and water, which raised the value of the building. When I bought this building, it was worth 1.5 million. I paid 1.7. You'd say, why in the world would you pay $200,000 more than the building is worth? Well, it's because we had some inkling about this concept of church economics. And so when we got this building in, they put 1.7 in the infrastructure, the mortgage was paid by their rent. The building value jumped in in two years or three years to 3.5 million. And -hmm. by the time we got the loan, it was 3.9 million. Then we take a loan, we build out our side. Now our mortgage is 16,000 and we're up to $12,000 of income. We rent to the fitness club. We're literally just opening an event center And uh, God willing, by the end of this year, we'll have a 5,500 square foot grocery store uh, here in the space, along with a lot of ancillary different projects and businesses that also pay us. Uh, A carnival uses our parking lot twice a year. It generates about $16,000 revenue Mm -hmm. for us. That's one month's mortgage payment just for hosting the carnival twice a year, right? So I could go through the different ways we leverage this building. People say, well, I don't have a hundred thousand square foot Kmart. If I had one, I could do that too. Well, listen, I didn't have that for <laughs> mm-hmm. 10 years. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And we saved money. That's one of the things don't spend save. But yeah. all that's to said is that this is one way churches, of course, have property all over this country. There's property and then churches are dying or denomination. You know what they do? They sell it. The worst thing you could do, mm. like they'll sell it and give away the no repurpose that property. Wow. Right. There are so many things that's that can be good. done and it generates income for your ministry. Uh, and so Mosaics helps people with that. But that's just one way uh, in terms of, of our property uh, that, that uh, you know, to answer your question, Micah, this grocery store, for instance, um, it's, it, we're in a food desert and we address food insecurity through our nonprofit. We have the largest food distribution in Little Rock. But oh. with the Chamber of Commerce, the mayor's office, working with a, a former NFL football player uh, from Birmingham, actually, Alabama. Uh, You may know Carlos Dansby, but putting in a Dansby food store, which generates income for the church, 10-year contract with three, five-year options, taking abandoned space, Uh, you know, so I could go on and on, but yeah, we're, we're just entrepreneurial that way. Yeah. Uh, mosaics global network is not only a network to resource and help others but we generate sustainable income and we share the profits if you will with the church what does that mean we created a separate organization mosaics global network of course in 2004 we have a number of products and services that we offer and we help churches with cultural intelligence assessment and training staff search it generates income well over the years it's generated enough income where I could return 78% of my salary to the church, Wow. okay? Uh, this year, our senior pastor is going to start taking more money from Mosaic's Global Network so he can return money to the church, which allows us to uh, sustain the mission of the church, hire more staff, etc. So we right. leverage the, uh, the, the work of our nonprofit to pay to generate some of the income that we as pastors make which keeps us in the same space because we're not out driving Uber and all that. No, we're still sure. working to build multi-ethnic churches just like yeah. we work with you, uh, but we generate income. And and therefore, it's not in addition to what we make. We leverage that to help mm. shape the budget of the church and be more transactional. So there's a variety wow. of ways you can do this uh, and, and are going to need to do this going forward.
1: Yeah. That's so amazing. So you've talked about a lot of great things thus far. and um, And I know you got to go here soon, so I don't want to uh, hold you too long. But I would love to ask you if you could speak to a, uh, a church planner, a pastor who was planning a multi-ethnic church, uh, what are three things you would sit down and tell him about church, church economics as they get started?
0: Hmm. That's a really, really great question. Well, the first thing, maybe, that I would that comes to the top of my head of, of all the things I, I could share, right? The first thing is <laughs> I want them to understand the disruptive model, this three legged stool yeah. we're talking about, because you need a North Star, right? You need a North Star to know where you're going. Secondly, there are no silver bullets. You will not get there overnight. If yeah. you're trying to build a healthy, multi ethnic, economically diverse, socially just, culturally intelligent, financially sustainable church, right? It's going to take you as a planner seven to 10 years to move from survival to stability and another seven to 10 to go from stability to sustainability. This idea that somehow quote, you're sustainable in three years. It's a myth. It's a joke. All right. What, when church planning denominations tell you, Oh, you got to get to 200 or 300 or whatever it is within three years. So you're sustainable. What that means is that you, at the end of two or three years, our funding is going to run out. And you need to have your own funding, and they're typically talking about tithes and offerings to cover the budget of the church, the salary of the church planter, other people on staff, or the different uh, you know programs or facilities they need to rent, what have you. The idea that you could be sustainable in three years is such a joke. What that mm-hmm. is, it's like it's like holding up your cell phone and taking a selfie in the moment. Maybe in that moment at three years, the tithes and offerings pay your bills. Let's say that happens, which only happens, by the way, for like 60% of churches in the first three to four years, uh, because the first 30 or 40%, they don't make it past four years. Uh, But let's say you did that. What happens in two months when the school you're renting doubles the rent? What happens when your sound, you don't have a sound system. You got to get a sound system or the one you have breaks and you need to replace. See, you're not sustainable. Yeah. And, and this is a myth, and, and in my opinion, it's a joke. You can't be yeah. sustainable The other uh, in three years. And, and so it's survival to stability, stability, to sustainability, which again gets to this fact there are no silver bullets. You have to understand that. You got to be like the turtle and not the hare. Remember the yeah. tortoise and the hare? You got to think Absolutely. like the tortoise. It's, it's every day at a time. And how you bring this vision out back, back to this is this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Mm. And I don't mean that in a spirit, like, like just kind of be spiritual, if you will. No, what Jesus is talking about is that demon that he faced and the way it comes out was a very different kind of demon or demons that the other disciples had faced heretofore.
1: Mm.
0: Any, you can plan a homogeneous church. You can go to a denomination. They'll give you a book, follow these 75 steps, follow these 200 steps. You can plan a, hey, it's like a recipe, no recipes with the kind of church we're talking about, the kind of church you guys are doing. This kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. And what does that mean? You have to be called. Mm -hmm. You got to know in your gut that God has called you to pursue this kind of church. From that calling comes your passion. And you're going to need that calling and that passion because the times are going to be so difficult. And you're going to feel like you do when you get on a motorboat and it's taking you spinning around an inner tube and you think you're just going to just go flying off in the distance because mm-hmm. the, the torque around the turn is so much. You're <laughs> yeah. going to have to constantly remind yourself of your calling and that passion rooted in calling will lead you to prayer, patience, and persistence. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's the so only good. way That's this good, comes man. out. Prayer, yeah. patience, and persistence. You're going to have to depend upon the Lord and be intentional. You can't just sit around in your office or, uh, you know, at some coffee shop and say, oh, and maybe you're a white guy and you're pray, Oh God, please send me, you know, a person of color, whatever to, that shares my vision. Right. No yeah. more than you can go out oh, and man. say, oh, I'm going to get two black guys, two white guys, two Hispanic guys, two Asian. You, it's not about quota and it's not about oh, wishful thinking. Yeah, no we Lord, just have man. to be intentional. And, yeah. and people are going to tell you like, well, you know, if God wants this diversity stuff, like, you know, it'll, God will make it happen. Mm. Right. What do you say to them? You, you ask them this question. Let me ask you about your preaching. You, you got a church, right? You go, yeah. Do you guys plan your preaching series? Do you plan what you're going to preach from week to week? Do you think about yeah. it? Do you lay out an order of service? They go, oh yeah. Say, what about worship? Do you figure out the songs you're going to use? And you kind of put a band together. Do they practice? And oh yeah, we do. That. What about evangelism? You have a small group strategy. Oh yeah. Here's how we approach it. We're very intentional about that. What about diversity? Oh man. If God wants diversity, he's going to make it mm. out. Mm. You know, that's, that's like saying, like, wow. you say to somebody, how do you guys do worship in your church? Oh, man, we just show up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sir Mark, talk to the people, man. <laughs> them
0: say, oh, what's your, yeah. what's your strategy? Are you guys intentional? Oh, no, man, we just walk around the streets.
1: <laughs> we just walk around the
0: streets and just wait for the spirit of God to fall. Right.
2: You see, the Lord was I'm
0: being intentional about all these yeah. other things in the Bible, except when it comes to building the kingdom of God on earth, revelation seven, nine, every nation, tribe, people and tongue on earth as in heaven. Everybody's mm-hmm. intentional at church about that, except that they don't want to be intentional. I'm saying, like, what man. is your deal?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. Tough. Absolutely. That is so tough. That's so be good, intentional. Man. That's yeah. right, man. That's good. Absolutely. Well, Hey, it's been an incredible conversation um, and again, for those of you who are watching, please make sure you subscribe, uh, you hit the notification bell, and that you share the content. Share the content because it is great. It has been great, uh, Mark Demas. You are the daggone man. And so, um, <laughs> so I, just real quick, if we could just take thirty seconds, you talked about you talked about the the switch for you, or at least the discomfort. You know, when you are working at a church and you saw the uh, that the only uh, persons of color were janitors or the cleaning crew or whatever have you. What was the, what was the switch for you when it came to economics?
0: Well, I think the switch for me, Marcel was like, I mentioned when I realized the more people that were coming our way, so to speak, both in terms of attending the church or looking, giving the church a look and, or coming throughout the week to knock on the door of our little office at the time, all of it was costing us money. Like it wasn't generating revenue. I mean, yes, some revenue was coming in tithes and offerings, if you will, but nowhere near enough to fund the work of the church and or to meet the needs of the community. And Mm. so, as I mentioned, very quickly, we realized that we're either going to be a little small church, just doing little small things and only taking care of our own with a couple of pastors and assistant and having to turn the community away because we just don't have the money or resources, Mm. or we were going to have to pivot to entrepreneurial leadership and, and understanding. And that's where that that switch came for us. And by the way, I should mention guys that, you know, this is what I do. 80% of my time, you know, is spent helping churches, uh, church plans, churches, denominations through mosaics.info. That's our website, mosai but through coaching and curriculum and conferencing, et cetera, that we're here to help you build the type of church Marcel and Mike are pursuing there, uh, as well as we are here in Little Rock. And if we can help you in any way, please, uh, please reach out to me. It's easy to get in touch with me. Just go to the website, mosaics.info
2: absolutely and let me just say that Pastor Mark means that I've had him here teach at our campus before uh, and he wasn't a guest speaker that was just and like camped out in the motel like he came and walked around our campus and we sat and had conversations uh, and he really does have a heart for this a God-given calling for this uh, and so he really will come and be an ally with you and for you and, and help you grow, grow the multifamily church God's calling you to. So he means that. So I encourage you, if you need some coaching, some help, uh, get in touch with them and they really will help you take your next step. So thank you so much for your time, Pastor. It's been yeah. amazing to connect and so much wisdom and insight passed on. So we, we're so thankful for you and appreciate your investment in uh, and all the people listening to Meg co- podcast. So thank you.
0: Sweet. Well, you bet guys. Keep up the great work and thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. No doubt. Thank no you. doubt. Make sure you follow Mark Demaz. Um, on all his platforms, That's and right. uh, uh, we'll put your link here in the description as well. Uh, but yeah, go follow this guy. He knows what he's talking about um, in case you can't tell. So, <laughs> uh, with all that being said, listen, go have a mega dope, tastic day. We are. Absolutely. Out. All right.